Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide, a CadSource production. In this episode, I chat with mental trainer and sports psychologist, Enric Yasbeek. Enric talks to us about the importance of mental training. With a sports psychologist and mental trainer, you learn to deal with pressure, fear, and nervousness. You learn to perform well even when you have negative thoughts, low self-esteem, and experience disturbances. And as our guest says, to be the best, you must overcome your inner and outer opponents. Specifically in this episode, we talk about how to apply mental training to the game, the uniqueness every footballer has on the pitch, journaling your feelings, youth football and soccer, Enric's time playing with top football clubs in Denmark, his transition from footballer to mental trainer, and much more in this wide-ranging sports and mental training discussion. And with that, we welcome our guest, Enric Yasbeek. I've always been fascinated by sports and being a father, I have three kids and they've all played sports at different levels. And my son, who's my oldest, and I have two daughters in States, he plays soccer and he's a goalkeeper and talk about mentality as a goalkeeper, seeing the training and seeing the coaches and the different people that we've talked to and watching him on the field to say, wow, this is more mental maybe than any other position on the pitch, right? And maybe in, than any other sport that's out there as you sit back there by yourself for such a significant amount of time, the way that most fans or people will see a goal go into the net and say, well, it had to have been the keeper's fault and how an individual can possibly process that not only during the game, but after the game and before the next game and, and all that type of thing. And it's been amazing for me to then come across people like yourself to say, well, there's a lot of people out there that are advocating for mental health and you're seeing it a lot with sports. And so to have the opportunity to chat with you, Henrique, is significant for me as I continue to learn about this process. And I know it's significant to many other people. And I like what you say on your side of you're aiming to be the world's best mental trainer. And I think that's also significant to have people like that, that have that type of aim in this world and in this sport. Anyway, it's awesome to chat with you. <laughs> Likewise, I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, you have a book now and you're talking about this. You're talking about on podcasts. I heard you on the Gloves On podcast. I've seen your content. I, you're out there and you're sharing the story. Why is the mentality of anybody, especially a soccer player, football player, why is it so important to you? Personally, because most people have an idea about their mindset and mentality, but they have a wrong impression of it. And that's because of that person who is having their own mindset and mentality and have their own perception of what is right and wrong, but is also a lot of impact from out other motivational speakers, mental coaches, high level athletes who is like, yeah, you need to be confident before the penalty kick as a goalkeeper. You need to be able to taste that you're going to take the ball. You need to be able to smell it, these kind of things. And it contributes to a lot of the wrong impressions and the wrong impression contributes to a wrong mindset and mentality in the player afterwards, which then in the long run makes them focus on the wrong things in a game, before a game and after a game. 
And so for me, it's just a lot about also adjusting the focus on mentality for a more realistic mindset and mentality. Yeah. You're growing up in the sport, obviously led you down this path as well as reading about your ascend in the sport. And you reached different levels, it seemed like. And every time you reached a new level, there was these new obstacles, whether it was on the pitch or dealing with the media or dealing with fans or your own mindset, right? Was there a point in time when you're playing your career that you realize like talent's one thing, having the mental strength, mental fortitude to really stay within the game and stay within yourself? What age were you perhaps, and it was your father, I think even giving you tapes at one point, a VHS tape to say, watch this and learn about it. Was that the point? Because you hear that from your father, probably a lot of times you're like, whatever, dad, like you're not ready for it yet. Like maybe it comes and hits you later. What was that like for you? Yeah, you're not ready for it and you're not prone for listening to your dad saying what is actually right and wrong, but you're more prone to hear from a psychologist or somebody you envy or you, you trust in because they can say the exact same things, but a player will listen to it. But for me, growing up being on the first team and being the top goal scorer for many years in a row, it wasn't a big mental challenge for me because you're also in your comfort zone, you're safe and knew everything. But for me, it happened when I was like 18 or something when I changed the club for the first time. And you felt like uh, they're not your friends anymore. They are your competitors. And this was also senior football. That was the point where like, okay, something else is going on here. And I wasn't actually equipped for the mental game that you're here to excel and you're here to perform. And if you don't do it, somebody else is going to take your spot. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of competition. Like we see it here in the States because there's different levels of teams. And we obviously have that as well. But when you're on the same team, you're on the same team. But at the same time, people are striving to go to next levels with the team. And so there is some internal competition that's going on, whether it's on your specific team or within the larger club. So there's obviously that point when it becomes more of a career than it is like a fun sport to play, even if it's at a high level, to where it is more competitive and you're not necessarily there to make friends with people. You're there to grow yourself in the game. How do you think today, let's start with the kids. How do you think young players are handling all that's being thrown at them? Because there's high expectations thrown. Even if the kid isn't even looked to be the next special player, there's still high expectations. And those expectations can be coming from within their small community, their family, their friends, their whatever. That is very challenging for them to handle. How do you think young players are handling it today? The short answer will be, I don't think that they handle it very well. But I also think it's the first step. And that is the impact from the coaches and the parents and then from themselves that many of the clubs and teams have a error or mistake focus. So you can't do this sort of behavior. I mean, you can't be very aggressive and lose your mind. That's fine. But if you try as an offensive player to dribble three or four players and make an incredible goal, everybody will celebrate and embrace what you do. But if you try the same thing the next week and you don't do it and you don't succeed in it, they're like, okay, you can't do these kind of things. So there's always a focus on eliminating the mistakes rather than proposing the creativity in the game. And I, I think it's a very, very big thing that most of the Danish, at least Danish clubs, but also foreign clubs, needs to be very, very much aware of because it has yeah. a tremendous negative impact on the players. Yeah. Do you think there's a, too much of a focus, like you had just said, you're focused on the outcome of the actual goal getting scored? I mean, even though many clubs and coaches will say, yeah, we are in our club and in our team, we're very focused on the process and not on the result. I mean, Nine out of 10 times. You don't buy that. Yeah, yeah. it's not true. Yeah. So, so for sure, that's a too big a focus on, on the results and, and on making things right rather right. than 
make all the mistakes they want to do because right. they was, they are very self-reflective and they're very self-critical. So they will learn from the mistakes on the pitch. Yeah. Doesn't it happen though, because I've seen this even just in this year, or I've seen a coach go from really focused on the process and seeing the success as the season went on to where now it seems to be more of a focus on winning the game because maybe there's challenges internally that he's having to deal with within the club to know if he doesn't win, his career gets halted, right? Like, well, he didn't win. And so he's in trouble. So it's almost like everyone has their own agenda in a way. Like, it doesn't mean all of his ways of being are bad. It's just very focused on winning the game. And so that then impacts, let's say, the 15 to 20 kids on that team. Is that right? I mean, there is that dilemma that exists of what is the person in charge? What is their aim? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you don't have this uh, club alignment of what is the purpose and focus on how we do things, is it on results? Is it on most goals or winning the gold medal? Or is it actually player development? If you don't have this alignment, of course, you will go in, into a different direction. And it's all about winning the game. But we have a, a lot of Danish teams. The biggest team is called FC Norseland. And they sold one player for Ajax Amsterdam in um, Ajax, you know, from the Netherlands, 70 millions. They're going to sell one for 100 million this summer also. And they've been selling players to Juventus, Sampdoria, last window. They are the best talent factory in Denmark. But they also only have focus on not winning on the 17th championship, on the 19th championship. They want to develop players. And they don't want to win the best league for the seniors in Denmark. They just want to develop players. But they develop the best players in Denmark. Yeah. What's the view on Denmark then when it comes to training young athletes? I mean, is it seen as these kids are coming out mentally strong and they have the right focus on it? I mean, is that how you see it? Like, I won't say that it's they have a focus on the players being mentally strong, but there is a very explicitly focus on the holistic uh, person behind the athlete. So they take care of a lot of other things than football. So the social gatherings, the thing that they need to excel in school, they need yeah. to do these kind of things. So all the big clubs will promote the holistic player instead of a professional player. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's important to have that, like you building that culture and building the whole person as opposed to just the player, like a football player. They don't have to be defined by the sport that they play. There's a bigger picture there, which I'm assuming something that's also you focus on. But that's something you say that the players aren't defined by what they do in football. But that is the problem because many of the players are defined by their identity in football. And that is a problem. So that's why they want to do the holistic approach and say you're much more than a player because as a player, your son can also be a very, very good goalkeeper, but he can be the second goalkeeper in the club, so he won't play all the games. So how do you handle this adversity and this resistance? Because you're not playing the games and it affects you in your family life, school life, etc. So that is also contributing for what you were saying before, like mentally strong players because they are full athletes and not only identified in the soccer field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a situation here in the States with American football is a big deal. And the kid who's going to go number one overall and most likely number one overall in the NFL draft, Trevor Lawrence played at Clemson is a highly ranked kid coming out of high school and college. And people are questioning his work ethic or they're questioning his love of the game. And he's like, I'm just not defined by the game. I love the game. I'm passionate about the game. And so there's a lot more to me. And people are just like, no, no, no. We want to hear that all you care about is football. And like where they don't realize like that could have a negative impact long term. And he have even had to speak out about it because they're overanalyzing him, of course. And it's all about how many touchdowns and how many games that he win and, and all that kind of stuff. And you're right, because in a position like quarterback, pitcher and baseball, 
goalkeeper in football, soccer, that there is only one. There's only one spot. And a lot of times these clubs will have two, three, four of them. How do they handle it? How do they grow with it? Because they peak at different times, right? The kid might not become his best version of himself and for the sport at least until in their late 20s. I mean, and who knows from there? So it's a constant development of working through the mentality, which I think is amazing to me, is I believe it's going to help them out for a long time, not just in the sport that they're playing, but in life as they run a business and all that. Do you see the same thing to where like a goalkeeper who's going through all of these ups and downs and whether starting now and next the next season, they're not playing much at all or they're on a different club and they're the third string keeper. Do you see that mental strength that if they're able to manage it on a daily basis as best as they can, that it'll help them out in the long term? Yeah, 100%. In Denmark, we also say that the, all the goalkeepers, they are like very big part of the team, but they also just by themselves. We always say that the goalkeepers have their own keepers union. They are themselves, even though they are on the team. But if you're not able to focus on the right things for your own development, you will be the cone at practice drills because you're not in the starting 11. And people feel like they are the cone. It's just a saying in Denmark, I'm just the cone this week because I'm not in the starting 11. So it doesn't matter about me. And it doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter because the coach is only, in many of the cases, focusing on the starting 11. But still, you have two or three practices a week. Maybe that's like 40% of the practice time during a week where you're playing the cone. So if you don't do anything actively, if you don't have a focus on any focus point that you want to develop, you will just be there physically, but mentally you'll be away somewhere else and your development will be like stagnating or at least not improving. So how does that player, they're not in the starting 11, how does that player, when they're going to practice for those three days a week, what do they focus on? What would you have them... I mean, obviously every player is different, but an example of like, where should their mindset be in that situation if they're not... Hey, maybe they've never been in the starting 11 and maybe they're just outside of it and they get in the game a little bit, but where should their mindset be during those practices? Yeah, we we always put it into like different periods throughout the season. So sometimes the players are strong and capable and they are ready to achieve, they're ready to do something more. So we focus on focus points. They can just be like goal kicks or like quick feeds for a goalkeeper, for example. But all the times we also focus on development point, like something that they're not good at yet, but needs to improve. So there's like the things like minuses that they don't do well enough yet. But that's also, you can't just focus on all the things that you're doing wrong and not good enough all the time. You also need to focus on some of your strengths that you're actually doing very well. So we combine it differently. Sometimes on the weak points, sometimes on your biggest resources. Are you doing this for the club or is it an individual player that's going to hire you? It's always individually the players that come to me because when you work in a team, everybody wants to have a mental coach or sports psychologist, but they want to have it two hours a week or five hours a week. And you do it collectively and it's about the team. It's not about the player. And it's a conversation a lot of times of how the player's feeling about a certain situation that's very unique to them, right? Yeah, individually. And if you have the same talk, you have it for a team for 15 players and five of them cannot connect to it and 10 doesn't want to listen. And when one might be like, hey, that's actually me he's speaking to right there. So right. It's, it's a very difficult job to improve the same things mentally in an athlete when you work with them individually compared to when you work with them collectively. Individually, it's a hundred times easier. Yeah. A lot of times I've noticed, or this is in all walks of life, whether it's in the office or on a field, an individual will be over-focused on someone else, not themselves, right? They start worried. For example, a midfielder's upset about the goalie, the way the keeper's playing. Why didn't they make that save? Why didn't this happen? Like, 
you have enough to concern yourself with to keep you busy over here for a while, but they're concerned with that. No different than a goalkeeper would be like, why aren't my defenders doing this? They should be clear, whatever that might be. Do you see a lot of that? I mean, obviously that's something that they need to work on. That's a them problem. But do you see a lot of that over-focused on what someone else isn't doing as opposed to just maybe focusing on what they need to be doing? Yeah. I mean, it's a change of perspective or a change of mindset. What, what do you focus on? And many of the players will, of course, say, and also probably be right, that the goalkeeper or the defender is playing terrible. And they focus on that. For me, it's just like, we need to be realistic. That is what's happening throughout the practice and the game. And if they're playing like shit, well, that's what they're going to think about. But what are you going to do about it? Because you complain about it and that's very, very fine. So for me, one of the first things is just like, you can start journaling because I really want to listen to your complaints and your, the lack of skills from your teammate. But I just want you to write it down first in a, like in journaling. Just write what's up in practice, who is playing lousy, who's playing like not the best. And then we can talk about it afterwards. And nine out of 10 times is also like players want to achieve and excel. That's what they want to do. They don't want to sit and, uh, and bullshit and gossip about the other players. But when they wrote it down for like 15 minutes and have to sit across me and say, okay, last practice was like this and he was playing like that. It's just like, yeah, I agree. So what do we want to do from here? How can we take responsibility for everything that's happening? I mean, it's out of my area zone, so I just need to do this and that. So players often, the minute they say it, first write it down and then say it out. Yeah. They are already in the handling process of getting onto a new focus. Yeah. And hopefully the players on the team have some of this mental training going on because you're going to hear it. You're going to hear complaints. You're going to hear, why didn't they do this? You're going to hear people talking, or maybe it's before the game and they're saying, hey, our keeper's not playing well. And that's the last thing a keeper needs to hear before a game, right? They're trying to get mentally prepared, but understanding like, hey, that's life in the big club. If you ever do make it, think about the fans that are going to sit back there and, and talk to you. And it's like, everyone's got opinion about David De Gea and how he plays and if he's not playing well. So like he's got to deal with what some person who might know or not know what's going on. So that's where it does become important that they all have this. It's just, let's be honest and let's be real. It's not typical that everyone's going to have that mental training or have someone like you on their side to help them through that. And so that's why it's important that you have content that's out there that you can access to learn from. Even if they can't hire you directly, they can at least maybe pick something up, right? Yeah, I think that it's also a lot about asking the right questions because when they complain about some of the other players or the level in the training is not uh, well enough or whatever it is, you can always tell them, the, well, this is the reality. I totally agree with you, but this can be a, like a block case for you. This is blocking you from improving. This is blocking you from being a professional athlete at some point. Or you can see it in another way. You always have two choices. You can also see it as an improvement, a difficult improvement case, because we also need to be realistic. This is very, very hard. You can always say to the player, oh my God, that must be very difficult for you to handle that. Your coach is very psychotic or aggressive, but right. what do we do about it? And, right. and you want to look at solutions and the players also want to do it. So if you ask the right questions, which way do we want to go? Is this a block case where we just need to complain about this for two weeks or do we need to see it as a difficult improvement case and how can we handle it? Yeah, that's important how you say that. You have two choices and two different ways to look at it. It's frustrating with, you know, you go to a game again at any level from very beginning, little kids to Premier League, right? Or something along those lines. And parents, so going back more onto the youth side of things, there's a lot of expert opinions out there that aren't coming from experts. And, and who is an expert anymore too, right? I mean, that's hard to decide just because someone says they are, or they've been in it for a long time, doesn't necessarily make them an expert. But that said, people really don't know what did happen out there. 
right? Like we talked about earlier as using the goalkeeper as an example, and we can use it both ways too, but maybe the goal did get scored on the keeper, but the ball never should have been inside the 18. That ball should be on the other side of the half field at this point, but something very basic, a giveaway happened. But a lot of people maybe didn't see that, or some people don't see exactly what's going on. I mean, there's a lot happening on a pitch and not everyone truly understands, even if they think they do, what is going on. And then people are getting blamed one way or the other as to what just took place. And then parents kind of exasperate it by taking it to those next levels. And a lot of times it's not their kid who made the mistake. It's someone else's child that made the mistake when it comes to these sports. I mean, that's a way to shut a young player down. I mean, who wants to be a part of something like that when we're trying to grow a game and develop a love and a passion for the game? But if we can burn that flame out very fast by parents over-involvement, overseeing all the little things that happen and chatting and coming from the sidelines, I'm just curious as to like what you've seen, not only start with yourself, like when you were growing up, did you have family on the sidelines? Were they supportive of you? Did you hear too much? Was it a combination? I mean, everyone's learning as you're growing through your career as a young player. I mean, how were you developing with family on the sidelines? <laughs> well, to be honest, my father was a very, very vocal. <laughs> I mean, the number one rule for parents uh, after a game is that the players need to come to them to talk about the game. You can't initiate the, the conversation about you lost today, you played well today, wait for the young guy to come by themselves. And, and my father, of course, didn't do that. He was actually very vocal. The minute we walked into the car, like complaining about how I did that and why I did like this, and you're not ready for it. Right. And what you actually mean of the players, they actually want the feedback from the parents sometimes, but they need to be ready for it. And in many of the cases, you can say like, whatever, wait like 24 hours or wait for them to come to you. So if they don't come to you on the day, wait 24 hours and then you can come and say your feedback and what you saw when you were observing the game on the side. I mean, many of the younger players who is like 15, 17, where the parents are taking the contact to me, they're like, is there anything we can do to make them perform better? And the most obvious thing is always to say, Put yourself aside a little bit. They have like three or four coaches and now they also want to hire me. So this is not your job. Your job is parenting and being there as a support, not lecturing them on how to play basketball or football. Yeah, yeah. You see a lot. When you go to see a youth game, what do you see on the sidelines that's happening? I think it's improving in Denmark because many of the clubs uh, have focused on that they can't be on the side and they can't coach the players. Like in golf also, you can't... If your son or daughter is like, 13, 15 years old, you can't walk behind them and coach them. You're not allowed there. You have to be like 200 meters behind them because they need to think individually on their own. And I think it's also getting into football a little bit, but people will still stand and shout sometimes, but it's getting less. Yeah. How many coaches are typically on a sideline for a good club in Denmark? I would say the best clubs for youth teams, I only think it's like two, maximum three coaches for a team. And you have one main coach, you have an assistant coach and one who's handling all the materials and they don't say anything really like goalkeeper coaches or is that more like a part of the club no not that much professional levels you have a goalkeeper coach of course sure. but uh, not yeah, yeah. use training and maybe the assistant will warm up the keeper definitely. yeah but warming up the goalkeepers right now you have five players on the bench and you have one or two of them who is warming up their goalkeeper yeah what's your favorite position I mean, maybe it's all of them. Is it goalkeeper? Is it somebody else that is from a mindset? Or is it maybe, is it not a position? Because they're all so unique. You know, a goal scorer, if they're not scoring goals, that'll block someone out really fast. But is there someone or some position that you like mentally training more than others? 
I mean, for me, I also have, I don't know, two or three goalkeepers, I think, but I was an offensive player, attacking player myself. And in the beginning, it, it was more easy to put yourself in the shoes because you didn't have the thoughts that a goalkeeper is having when the team is having a very equal game and they have like 90% of the ball position and they're not active in the game. So what do they do? They find the focus wandering on something else yeah. and then they find themselves one second behind where there's a counterattack at some point. And how do you deal with that? I didn't notice or think about these kind of things before because my impression as a former striker was just like, well, the goalkeeper needs to be ready all the time. <laughs> what else can he do? But then right. you start to learn about, okay, it is actually very difficult to stay focused. But I don't know if I have any like specific favorite positions. Yeah. I think everything is very interesting. No, it is all very interesting. And that is right. And I think you had said this before that there's 90 minutes in a game. And how do you stay focused for those 90 minutes? And did you ask the question of like, when's the last time you were focused for 90 minutes straight in your life? Like, isn't that right? Like the answer is never. <laughs> so how does someone... And, and because there's a couple of things happening. One is maybe you did lose focus for a minute and you made a bad play. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? That happened, right? Because we can dwell on what just took place. But what are you going to do going forward? But there's just so much happening right there, like a mistake. And you see, you know, I was just at a youth softball game yesterday and I see the pitcher and the pitcher threw like seven bad pitches in a row and you could see them losing it. And you could hear parents on the sidelines kind of checking in and talking to them and like pushing them. And then you hear the coaches and you hear the fans and it's like, and then they threw a good pitch and they popped back up a little bit and they threw a bad pitch and they went back down and it was like, where is this going to end up? And it ended up in tears on the sidelines, quite frankly. And there's younger, right? But you see it at all different levels. If someone makes a mistake, you see the head drop down, you see the shoulders, you see the reaction, you see their kind of their smile kind of go away or whatever they were having. Not necessarily sure like what the question is in that, but how do they handle all of these ups and downs? I mean, obviously it's being mentally strong to know that. It's like in life, like it's not going to go your way all the time. Things aren't going to go your way. And how do you deal with it? Yeah, I think there's two different answers to it. The first is like, you really need to learn yourself very well. Like what is your mental state? What kind of thoughts and feelings and bodily emotions are you experiencing when you're pressured? And this is the things that you need to write down and work with mentally. So you're very, very understanding that this is also going to happen in my next mistake and my next game, because this is just my normality. And then the most important thing in the mental work is to learn to accept this is how it is. And I cannot focus on changing that I don't believe in myself, that I don't feel confident right now, that I'm not thinking positive thoughts right now. But what can I do meanwhile? I'm not thinking or feeling these kind of things. And that is when you need like a mental game plan to say what is actually always in your control. That is always your attitude, your behavior, and your concrete actions on the pitch. You can always take responsibility for what you physically is doing, even though that you're thinking bad or feeling bad. And that is exactly what you need to do. And that is the game that you need to fight. Not fighting the game about my mental state needs to be positive and believing in myself. It doesn't. Because you will experience uh, times in all games where it isn't like that. So I think that is the, one of the first things that you need to be very understanding of what you're feeling and thinking and then learning to accept these kind of things and then being in that out of comfort zone state where you try, even though there's consequences of still practicing and still showing up and still participating in the game because if you participate in the game, you can still make another mistake. You can lose the ball and then the mental state is getting even worse. So the question is, is it actually worth it to involve yourself again or is it better to actually to be a little bit passive? Because if you be passive, there's no critique on you, there's no eyes on you, so maybe you just stay safe. But that is actually when the players hate themselves the most after the game because they're like, 
yeah, I just wasn't really there today. Well, then where were you? You were on the pitch, but you're totally in your own mind. And that is the first thing. So you can say accept and then develop a mental game plan and, and learn how to stick to the game plan. And then the second thing is that you can also start working on the mental focus. Where is your focus? The focus is always one, one place. You said it before, so you can stay focused for 90 minutes. And so how do you develop that skill to be more focused or enhancing our focus? The best thing is to learn how to navigate in when we lose our focus and where we lose it to. So you can have like different kind of zones. You have the flow zone where you're in focus and you don't think anything. And then you have another zone called like the blue zone where you like evaluate and assess how you're doing. Oh my God, I'm on fire today or I'm playing miserable. Or, and what is the consequences of my actions? Maybe you're going to lose the game, maybe you're going to win the game. It might sound right or good that you're thinking, oh my God, I'm really playing well and we're going to win the game because of my goal 10 minutes ago. But it's not a good focus. You still need to be in the green focus. You are in blue focus where you evaluate yourself. And then further in the zone, you have other zones like previous actions is always being replayed in the mind of especially a goalkeeper because they also have time for it. And then you're in the black zone of focus. And the thing is not to say it's wrong to be in the blue zone, black zone or red zone. It's just to be aware that I'm in the black zone focus right now, which is in my previous actions. And the minutes or the second you're like, okay, I'm in the black zone focus right now. Yeah. Should I be here? Probably not. So what can I do to reactivate myself to get in the green zone focus again? Yeah, that's an important piece of everything you just laid out there and understanding then there's this, the word awareness, like just being aware of how you felt about it and being okay with it. And, and you've talked about journaling quite a bit. And obviously that's a big part of something that you're doing. I want to touch on something because this is very important because we talk to a lot of athletes or people that have been athletes and there's this life after your playing days. When did you know that your playing days, and maybe you're still out on the pitch and you're doing things, but your playing days of like your aim to be like at the highest level club, let's say, or play for the national team, when did you know that that was done? First time, maybe I was like 20 or something. I tore my ACL. Yep. So you were out for like 12 months and then you started playing again and I was terrible for the next year or something. And then for the next four years, we played professionally, but I played like 20 games or something. So it led, statistically, it's like five games per year because there were so many follow-up injuries and the clubs didn't want to re-sign my contract. So I was like 24 and I was like, yeah. That's it. At that point, you're like, my body is hurting, but it doesn't make sense for me to play like sub-elites because yeah, that was just game over for me. Was your mindset at this time, and I don't know what that time period was while you're trying to fight back into the game, where were you mentally? I was actually not very mental strong. I was actually very, very fragile because when you are physically weak as my body were, because you are always being like, you are on a contract, so you're being paid to play. And even though you have all these follow-up injuries, the physical therapists are also getting paid for you to get ready and say, he's also ready for, for playing on the squad. But then you play three weeks too early and you throw another injury up. And it just sits in you at some point. It just sticks in you that, I actually feel weak in my body because all the other players, we are like 30 players in the team. Everybody's meeting up at 10 o'clock in the morning and then going practice. And then you have two or three players who are sitting on a spinning bike or something. And then 27 players are going out and playing. And if you're continuously being the player who's sitting inside and doing bicycle training, it really hurts your confidence. And, and yeah. you really start thinking, am I actually a football player? What am I actually doing? Right. So you come out of that. How long did it take you to kind of transition into the life that you're leading now, because obviously what you had to go through allowed you to become 
the mental trainer that you are today. Like, I don't think my guess is I don't, and I'm sure you think the same thing, like without those experiences, you're not doing what you are doing right now. So obviously it worked out and maybe wouldn't wish it on someone, but this is what was very important to get to this point. But how long did it take you to transition from saying, here's where I was, here's where I am now. And I'm not mentally strong with this. I'm very fragile. And to this next point of saying, I could do something bigger with this. I think it took six years. And in these six years, I didn't watch the Danish soccer because it hurt too much to see the players that was on the TV every week. And you see some of the players, the teammates you had that you're competing against the spot on the pitch. They play Champions League at the moment and you're just like, and right now I'm doing a study. <laughs> and yeah. it's just like, it hurt too much. I was just like, I was just abandoning everything for like six years. And then, but still you had like some comebacks into the sports and into football because some would contact you and you started talking with players. You still have contact to, of course, a lot of players in the football industry. And, and when you start talking about the mental side of it, you just work with one client or one player unofficially, just talking about it in a random meeting or something or a coffee meeting or something. And then it actually just started right there. Wow. It's a lot to go through, we see with athletes to then realize that. But it's interesting to me as well that you put so much into this game and you leaned into it so hard to where you broke through to this side of the sport that if you have this passion for it, you don't like, you know, the opportunities that can come from you playing the game, right? Becoming a great player, doing all these things. Those are the things that you know could possibly happen. It's the unknown that I think is also very fascinating that if you put yourself out there, if you do these things, the unknown of having that next thing come about, which is what you're doing in the mental training, it's no different than having a conversation. I know we could have a good conversation. I don't know what that could ultimately lead to, but I'm not going to over-focus on that. I'm just going to focus on what I can do right now in our conversation. And then from there, we'll just take it and go. But I think you leaning into this, I talked to my, whether it's my son and say like, if you're this passionate about the position of goalkeeper, about playing soccer, about doing these things, well, there's so much that can come from it, whether it's you continuing to play for a long time or who knows, maybe you develop a goalkeeper glove company in the future, or you become a coach, or you become a mental trainer, something completely unrelated. But those experiences led you, you were so vocal on the field that you became a public speaker because all the players could hear you from the next field over, right? There's so much that can come from it. So for me to talk to someone like yourself, to see this thing play out, and to have someone who's so mentally strong, who's got it all together, is very succinct, like yourself and what you're saying. It's fascinating to me because it's not always what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, very true. And I think one of the rules of FUMP is that go all in in whatever you're doing. If you're uh, doing a pizza delivery, if you're working in a social club, if you're being a football player, go all in. I mean, that's only when you are able of filling some very valuable experiences in your backpack in life. And if you don't do that, that's always when you're like, yeah, I was also playing football at some point, but I didn't quite get all in. I didn't put myself like the effort enough in it. And it, it sits in you. It really sticks in you like, it doesn't feel well that you didn't do enough, but you thought you had more in you. So it always go all in. Yeah. U.S. soccer, do you keep up at all? Like, because obviously the sport is so big worldwide. In the U.S., there's a lot happening. It's not as big. It's growing. And there's a few different layers to U.S. sports. I mean, youth soccer, for example, is very expensive. I know what the U.K. looks like. And I just don't know in Denmark, it could be thousands of dollars for a good club. If you're going to the top level club, I mean, it could be five, 10, even more thousand dollars per year for a player to play. And then you have like, they didn't play in the World Cup, which is, you know, a big deal. And then they're going to be hosting it with Mexico and Canada coming up. And there's colleges here, right? So I've seen players come from overseas and people want to come to the States and play. And 
it's a different kind of game here, perhaps at that level. And maybe it's not as type of level that you would get in Europe. But I see that if soccer in our country, right, in the United States, if it takes off here, there is an opportunity here, I guess, for an opening for soccer. I'm just curious as to like your work or conversations that you've had with people in America and what your thoughts are on U.S. soccer. Yeah, I mean, I don't follow U.S. soccer that much at the moment, but right now we just had a Danish player, which I know, he's called Melde Amundsen. He just moved to New York City. Yeah. And he's a left back and he's a real machine. And then when he starts playing that right now, I think he got his debut this last week. I probably will start following U.S. soccer a little bit more because you know him. But besides that, the European soccer is, of course, in a much higher level than American soccer is. But the money here, I think you talked about 5000 or 10000 or whatever it is. I mean, the money here is abundant. You can earn $5,000 a month when you're a youth player here in many of the Danish clubs also. And Danish football is not, maybe it's top 15 in Europe, but still it's not top 10. But the money is insane in Denmark because we don't have any salary caps or anything here. We just pay them what they want, but the money is big in football. But an eight-year-old who's going to go out and start playing, are they playing high fees to play in a league? Or is it just like, hey, come play? Because we're trying to find the next great Danish player, right? So the question is, if you can pay an eight-year-old? No, not pay an eight-year-old. Is an eight-year-old having to pay to play on a youth team? Yeah, yeah, they pay like, I would think maybe $100 or $200 okay. a year. Yeah. So they pay to have your license in a club. Yeah. But they're looking for the next great player or a quality player to put in their academy program and all that, right? That's more the end game. You can't pay players and you can't contact players before they turn 15. Oh, wow. Because otherwise you see like Lionel Messi in Barcelona. He was like 11 years old or something. Then he went to Spain. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Our, so you have people coming to the States and then you have kids. Are, do you know of kids that are going from the United States to play in Europe, like, are you seeing that? I mean, you see like a Christian Pulisic, but that's an elite level player, right? Because there's so many different levels. I mean, in just in England alone, I mean, I mean, how many different leagues are there? Are you seeing it go both ways? I'm just trying to see like, you have this sport that's worldwide and where can you, like in America, it's like, well, you can do this. You go to college and then you can go and play semi-pro or you can go play maybe in the MLS. And the things are opening up. Like you and I having a conversation today, like, Borders, they're not opened up because of COVID, right? But they are opened up in ways to where you can have conversations with people you otherwise wouldn't be able to have that conversation with. What's stopping a kid from playing here, let's say in Charlotte, North Carolina, to in university or post-college, right? Going to live in Denmark for a few years and play and find a club there to play in. Are you seeing that those things are happening or are these countries really sticking to their own to say, no, no, no we want to just have our kid, yeah. Mm, no, I, I can't say if any of the European countries are very nationalistic and they want to use their own players i don't think so many of the teams are actually looking to make a broad spectrum of players and you see in some of the teams it's pretty popular in denmark that you have a combination of youth danish talents and then combined with some african yeah. players and and something from abroad and then some routine players also but it doesn't matter that much with nationalities it doesn't matter that much, actually. Most of the teams have like at least five players in the starting eleven. That is Danish, but it doesn't matter. You wouldn't see it like 10 years ago that it wouldn't be a dominant uh, Danish team, but it is more now, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's important to hear because I think that, I mean, even if it's for kids here, if someone ever heard this, like that you can go explore your opportunities. I and mean, it's a big world out there. And if you're willing to go live somewhere else, I mean, and likewise for someone coming over to America, like there's opportunities that exist there. So 
Henrik, who are the people that you're training the most? I mean, is it locally? Is it nationally? Are you doing Zoom calls? Like, who would be a person that you would want to work with? Right now, it's more national or European because the best players from Denmark, they play abroad. And some of the players that I've been working with for maybe one or one and a half years, I never met them physically because they play in Italy or Germany or Austria or whatever. So it is those clients who is at the elite level, but... I also think it's very nice to see the development cases for a 17-year-old player who wants to and have a chance of being pro because even though they are the best at their level when they're 17, it's not equal that they're going to succeed into a pro life because it's such a narrow thing you need to go through. And it's many of the players, they are the best and they go to Tottenham or Arsenal for a tryout when they're 17 and 18. And then four years later, you see they play like third division or something. I'm not sure if people here. So it is also interesting to be on the side of them trying to take that step, which is just really, really hard. Yeah. I mean, everybody have great ambitions and these kind of things, but it's zero point something percent who actually succeed in getting a pro license to play. Yeah. Well, you see a lot of mental health stuff on the negative side coming from, let's say you mentioned Arsenal or Tottenham, right? That these kids were at a young age identified as this player and say four or five years into it, they're discarded like they're nothing that they're just, they didn't develop. They peaked when they were 16 years old and that's it. And then how does that player deal with what am I now? Kind of like some of the things that you were thinking through that they have to deal with that aspect of it now. And I think the earlier that you can have someone like yourself in their life, that's important. Maybe like that day may come, may not. It's not like you're going to sit there and plan for it, but it's important to have someone like you in their corner. I also think it's getting more and more popular that clients coming to you or to the mental coach that they're not coming all of them is not coming with a problem to be fixed. They're coming more like proactively or preventive because they just want to be equipped for what kind of resistance they're going to face in the future. Yeah. Well, there was a stigma around if you go to therapy, if you have a mental health coach, if you have these things, that something must be wrong with you. And that thing, that that wall is being torn down and it hopefully continues to be because you can have a conversation like you. And the only thing I can be left is feeling better about things, right? And, and the way I think through it and understanding that there's these problems and these obstacles that'll be in the way, but how do you prepare for that? How do you plan for it? How do you deal with it when that situation comes? Being aware, journaling, doing all these things, having conversations, I think it's all very important. Henry, where do people find you? Where do they connect with you? Where do they buy the book? What's the best way? Yeah, well, the book is uh, only in Danish at the moment. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be in English this year, but maybe next year. But I do the side on an Instagram called HH Mentality and also try to do a more English side on HH Mindset. But HH Mentality is the main source and we are trying to make it more and more English because right now it's in Danish. But otherwise on LinkedIn and like Yaspik, everybody's uh, more than welcome to write. And yeah, my website is hhmentality.com and everybody can write an email and I'll reply to them. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, I can say this, when I was reading your blogs, it is in Danish, but then at the same time, Google translates amazing and it instantly translates it so I can read it. And and I know sometimes the things aren't translating perfectly, but you get the idea. And perhaps my guess is there's ways to do that with Kindle books as well or something along those lines. So someone can get the gist of it or they can just listen to a podcast like this or all the different content that you're creating. But Henry, it's been awesome. I appreciate the opportunity, like I said before, to chat with you and to continue to think through all this because we're fascinated by it as I've used that word quite a bit, but that's how I feel. So thank you again. Thank you. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. 
If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sports Epreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sports Epreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Mm-hmm.